0: Listeners, I'm your host this week, Rhiannon Hoyes. This is the podcast where we tackle some of the trending topics, ideas, and best practice in health and social care. This week, I'm joined by the lovely Rosie Reed, Development and Training Coordinator from Making Families Count. So, Rosie began her pre- professional life in arts marketing, working first in London and then in Oxfordshire, where she ran her own company. In 2015, Rosie was asked to join the training organisation Making Families Count. Since then, she has also worked with NHS England, co-writing Learning from Death Guidance for Families, as well as acting as a speaker for the original Patient Safety Incident Response Framework Roadshow with NHS England. She writes a blog um, and is a frequent contributor to various magazines. So, Rosie, welcome to, to What The Health Tech. Um, I just want to start by um, finding out a little bit more about you. I know you've got a very interesting career background, um, but what is it that you like
1: to do outside of work? Outside of work? Well, um, if I gave a very truthful answer, it would probably be thinking about work. But I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say that I have a massive vinyl collection, which I love listening to. Um, I'm very into dance music, like to spend a lot of time when I can getting myself around Europe to lots of festivals and when I'm not doing any of that I'm quite fond of a bit of painting and I don't mean painting the house. Uh, fabulous, that all sounds right up my street
0: to be honest, painting, uh, dance music, I love it um, and it's great to find out more about you and um, so thank you for sharing. Um, so let's get straight into the into the more serious questions now. Um, so, firstly, can you give our listeners a quick overview of making families count um,
1: and a bit more about your role there? Of course, making families count is a unique training organisation. We train healthcare professionals, sometimes social care professionals as well, and our training revolves around positive family engagement, the benefits for families and the benefits for staff. We're unique because we're made up of a mix of traumatically bereaved and harmed family members who work together with senior NHS staff.
0: Amazing, thank you. Um, I think there's so much that kind of Making Families Count get, get involved with and your role in particular sounds like yeah, very varied. Is is there kind of anything from your yes. role that you particularly enjoy I'm, doing? I'm very um,
1: sorry, you know, my role is varied, but uh, I forgot to uh, mention how role. Uh, yeah. Um, so uh, basically, I am, for most people, the first point of contact with MFC. Um, yes, I'm the development officer. And what that means is that I'm the person who thinks up ideas, things we could be doing, things we should be doing, promoting us, making sure we're better known, flying the flag, but I'm also developing all our training. So I'm thinking about the contents of webinars, how relevant, how important they are. If we want people to keep on booking our training, our training has to stand out in a crowded marketplace. It has to become essential. And it does that because of the content and the speakers.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for that. I think you're right in the sense that um, making families count stand out because I, I for one, did notice um, making families count at an an event last year, um, which was actually the patient safety uh, congress um, that you were talking at. Um, And that kind of leads on nicely to my second question. Um, which is all around the Patient Safety Incident Response Framework. Yes. Um, I know you did a talk at Patient Safety Congress and you you talked about, obviously, your personal experiences and kind of what brought you on board to making families count. Um, could you tell us more about, um, yeah, the Patient Safety Incident Response Framework and how you see that fitting into an investigation process and how it can be inclusive of patients and their families in order to make sure that both sides are heard
1: well, first of all, I, I must say at this point, I'm not a specialist in Peace Earth. There are people out there, people like Tracy Herlihy, who wrote it, people like Lou Pye, people like Donna Forsyth, and they could tell you an amazing amount about it. What I can talk about is the training we do around it and how we think it's going to work. Um, there is no doubt that after we'd spent two years working on learning from death's guidance that it became all too clear to us that over and over the same patterns were repeating following an avoidable incident a serious incident in healthcare, and that is that families were being further harmed by not being engaged with well and this had two effects one it it made for a lot of traumatised families out there, deeply traumatised families, who then had to spend sometimes years and years and years just fighting to get the basic facts of what had happened. And it also meant that instead of learning from errors, because everybody makes errors, everybody makes mistakes, it's, it's human, but instead of learning from those errors, even when an organisation said it was, when they said that dreadful statement we have lessons have been learned, so very often they may have been learned when the statement was made, but in reality, the same mistakes happened again and again and again. And we thought something has got to change. Something has got to change. We need to see organisations stepping back from a defensive role, and again, seeing well, what can we change? And that's where surf comes in. So I see Surf as son of learning from deaths, or daughter or possibly another relative. But it's using that same thing and it's saying that it's really important to involve the family in any investigation that takes place in a meaningful way. Meaningful because it has meaning for the family, but meaningful because the evidence that they will give will be given parity with the professionals and will enhance real learning for the organisation.
0: Yeah I think you raised a lot of good points there Rosie about um, making mistakes and how a lot of health um, healthcare professionals you know don't go into their daily roles wanting to make mistakes it's just the reality and how, how things happen and how the organisation responds to that is almost more important they need to show that they are acting and they need to show that they are doing something about it and i guess that's where like you say making families
1: count um come in and can help absolutely um, some one thing that always sticks with me was i met a really remarkable woman um she's a counsellor in um norfolk and she's one of those people that you don't forget her name her name is sheila handley i don't think she'll mind me saying her name and she lost her son richard in a hospital setting, in an acute setting, in a wholly avoidable death, a horrible death for her son that nobody deserves. And the one thing she said to me is, if I can see proof of learning and change and knowing that another family won't have to go through what we went through, that to me will be the greatest comfort.
0: Yeah, uh, that's exactly that, isn't it? I mean, thank you for
1: sharing that. That um, is quite inspiring, really. Um, It is, it is. And I will say also that while I was at um, the the Patient Safety Congress that you mentioned earlier, I had a, a very interesting conversation with a very senior consultant who said to me, and she meant it, all families want is someone to blame. So I want to say equivocably now that is not the case sometimes there is someone to blame and it's good to know who that is but no family has ever wanted a head on a pike no family has ever wanted to chase anyone with pitchforks what they want to know is the truth and they want to know it isn't going to happen again to another family
0: yeah yeah pitchforks i like that <laughs> uh nice analogy um thank you for that rosie i think um for our listeners it would be quite interesting if you could tell us a bit more about your personal experience and kind of what brought you to making families count in the first place i know um obviously that you kind of brought it up at patient safety congress so if you wouldn't mind sharing a bit on that no no Um, I, i don't
1: mind sharing at all i'm um it's it's always a little bit difficult to talk about personal painful events Um, I can hold forth for hours about other people's traumatic experiences very easily but when talking about your own it's a little bit harder Um, to try and say it quickly I came to this work because I used to be an ordinary person believe it or not well fairly ordinary Um, some people might dispute that but like most people my idea of the NHS was my local GP surgery and my local hospital you don't really think beyond that because that's That is, that is the NHS for you. And it certainly never occurred to me in my wildest dreams that I would encounter people who worked for the NHS, an organisation that I admire beyond words. I think it is just a gift in this country, but it never occurred to me, I would encounter people that worked for it who might be untruthful or dishonourable, but that's what happened. So my son, uh, my only son, Nico, It's a bit of a cliche to say the light of your life, and perhaps that does my lovely daughter a disservice, but he certainly, Nico was an amazing child and a wonderful son to have. And his death was unnecessary and wholly unexpected. And it catapulted me into this peculiar Alice in Wonderland world where up was down and down was up. I couldn't understand how it could be that the trust who were responsible for his care could actually send me a letter saying that they had had an investigation and had decided not to share with me why and how he had died because I would find that too upsetting. So I had to organise a funeral for my beautiful golden boy being unaware of why and how he had died. And in this day and age, that is not acceptable. And I had to fight for years literally fight tooth and nail to try and get anything from this trust any information any engagement any type of engagement and it ended up with me becoming quite active on social media as I tried to raise the profile of what was happening to me at this point completely unaware that my story was mirrored over and over and over again all over the country I didn't know that I thought I was a one-off and gradually it dawned on me I wasn't. And I spoke at a conference. And at that conference, the woman that was putting together Making Founders Count, who was at that point pretty high up in NHS England, she, she thought that I would be a bit of a catch for the organisation and asked me to join. It was actually the best yes I've probably ever given in my life. And I think my partner will forgive me for that. <sighs>
0: I'm sure he will. <laughs> I'm sure he will. I'm sure he hears lots about Making Families Count and all the work you're doing. I know you you do lots of blogs and, and things, don't you? So it sounds like you've definitely raised your profile and you've definitely shone a light on the things that need to improve um, in health and social care for everyone but also for your son
1: um so thank you well, so much i can't um, do anything for my son now but i can do something for other people's sons but the other thing i've realized is that whenever you get a trust that an organization i should say that doesn't engage well with families they frequently don't engage well with their own staff so when we're training people we're very often talking about the way that staff work with each other, the way that staff support each other. Nobody finds it easy to have a difficult conversation with a distressed family member. So they need support around that. So it really isn't just about families. It's about breaking down that barrier of them and us and getting the heart of it, which says you may work for for a healthcare organization, but you're also a family member. A family member can also work for healthcare. We are all the same and we all need support. And sometimes when staff are better supported and they come from a, a better place, they find it so much easier to engage with a distressed family member and they don't put it off and they don't, they don't walk away from it and give it to somebody else who's even less able than them. Because they feel the confidence, they feel the backup, they know what they're doing.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think exactly, exactly that. And we were saying, weren't we, that everyone is a patient you don't have to work in health and
1: social care we are also patients they're patients and i've been a patient very recently yes i've been i've had the most exemplary care thank you very much oxford university hospitals (laughs) um i had a heart attack followed by a heart arrest i was dead for five minutes i can tell you folks it's not all that it's pretty boring really life is so much better and I, yeah, I've been looked after by a team of fantastic people, and they are the reason I'm here talking to you today. Well, thank God for that. Um, well, or whoever.
0: or whoever whoever is in the sky somewhere whatever her name is (laughs) um that that definitely kind of covers my um my next question um which um as you say you were in hospital yourself um in november can you give us a bit more detail around that rosie if that's okay um in terms of maybe how the experience was different kind of oh gosh okay
1: um Oh, so the experience of dying, chapter one. Um, I think that, I think we all of us take for granted that we are in reasonably good health and that we expect our body to do certain things. We expect our, our lungs to pump air, our heart to pump blood, and we just get on with it. When one of your major organs, your heart, for example, lets you down, it's a shocker it changes the way you look at things. Um, it, I Obviously, I had f- very, very first-hand experience of seeing that when an NHS trust runs like a well-oiled machine, oh my God, they do it right. Apparently, within 40 seconds of me dying, I had a crash team on me. I was on the car. Apparently they were wheeling me down a corridor while cutting off my, I have to say my good Marks and Spencer's top, but that's gone now. Cutting off my top while giving me CPR, while shouting to the recess room, they were on their way. I was oblivious to all of this. I was a laptop and somebody had pressed the button and I had gone to sleep. And yes, there wasn't a big white light waiting for me on the other side there was just a big deep sleep without any dreams in it. And the first thing I knew was somebody calling my name. And I'd opened my eyes and turned to her and said, who are you? And it turned out she was the woman who had just saved my life. Oh, so big wow. up to Dr. Helen. Ah, oh, Dr. Helen, we love you. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Helen, head of the recess team at well, one of the heads of the recess team at the Horton Hospital A and E, Oxfordshire. Amazing, thank you. I'm sure she'll appreciate being recognised if she ever think gets to watch what she this podcast. Was uh, a few minutes later when I was a little bit more coherent. I said to her that she had to ring her mother that evening and say to her, "Today, I saved the life of somebody." who really, really needed to be saved. <laughs> that was very egotistical of me, wasn't it? <laughs> but my, my family needs me. I'm ha- we, are still, we are still, even now, coming to terms with the loss of Nico. When you lose a child, the, it, it, when you lose a family member in general, actually, it, it's like ripples on a pond. The pebble drops in the pond and the ripples go out and out and out and they touch every corner of your life. And so there is really no such thing as getting over, getting past, moving on. Why would you want to move on from the death of somebody you love more than yourself? Who would want to do that? And so the last thing I wanted to do with my to my family is give them another traumatic death. And frankly, they wouldn't manage without me. No. <laughs> I'm not I'm sure anyone else. I'm the only one who knows where the paprika is in the cupboard. Thank you, Rosie.
0: Thank you so much for sharing all of that with us today. Um, I know you talked obviously about Helen, who saved your life. Um, It kind um, of—I was wondering if we could move on to our next question, which was more around um, health and social care workers in general um, and how they can make a difference and and what they should consider um, if if a patient is affected by an incident.
1: Is there certain steps that they should be taken or oh, that you'd advise? Definitely, definitely. I mean, I would say number one, they should um, talk to whoever books their training and and have a look on our website and pick out some nice training courses for themselves. And they will find those extremely useful. But if I had to do a sort of a a, a quick bullet point list, I would say, number one, early contact. The worst thing that could possibly happen has already happened to the family. You contacting them could not make it worse. You leaving it before you contact them simply gives the family the impression that you don't care. And you need to think about how that contact is going to be. Often picking up the phone isn't the right thing because you're suddenly, in effect, dropping into that person's house unannounced. And they may not be ready for having phone conversation so perhaps a letter might be better but what you need to say is two two things at the beginning you need to say you're sorry and remember saying sorry is not an admission of guilt nhs resolution is very clear about that they will never ever allow that to affect any case that may occur because the organization said sorry sorry is human it's a human response. You are sorry that they are in agony. And the other thing you're going to say is, what is going to happen next? You're going to explain that there's going to be an investigation or whatever there's going to be, and you're going to ask them what part they'd like to play. You perhaps could explain what their part could be. So you're from the very beginning, you're setting out a relationship which is open, honest, and transparent, you're thinking not about how you can get out of using duty of candor, but how you're going to use it in a meaningful way. Yeah, exactly. Um,
0: I think they are like you, like very simple steps almost that should be considered straight away. Um, and I guess I don't know whether these things get, get missed um, because there aren't the proper procedures or processes in place. Um, But um, obviously making families count is there for NHS um, trusts and for healthcare organisations if they do want to reach out um, and and get training and advice. Um, So that leads me on to my next question. Um, In terms of we've been talking about a lot of things that can go wrong in healthcare, um, but there are also good Parts and um, lots of good there parts, are. There are likely many. being saved, um, and and times where things do go well. Yeah. Um, so, for example, in radar healthcare, complaints and compliments are both important to record, and it's encouraged for patients to feedback on on their experiences, so staff can see what has worked well and what can be improved. Um, so, yeah, how do we do? You see patients and
1: families getting involved to actually demonstrate when things are going well. Well, there's lots of ways that families can get involved, but as I was saying before, you've got to remember that most people don't have a clue how that is. So it really is down to an organisation to make it clear how they could. A family isn't going to know that unless they're told. Um, Quite a lot of organisations have opportunities for volunteering, if that's your thing, and it can be very, very rewarding indeed. But if you get in touch with NHS England, you might be surprised just how many posts there are paid part-time work. They call it PPI patient. It's patient partnership work, basically. And it covers all kinds of areas from mental health to cancer care to almost anything you can think of. And these roles aren't constantly there, but they very often are and they're crying out for committed people, particularly those who have experience of that, who can bring that experience to bear and bring all their knowledge to share with the clinicians.
0: Yeah, I I think, I I I even know a few few people that have volunteered in the past, and um, there are some people at Radar Healthcare that that kind of do it alongside their day to day job. Um, so you're right in the sense that you can just kind of go go on Google and, and well, there's so much. You know that what? You can do Actually, I've, I've just um,
1: I've just joined um, a, ca- a sudden cardiac arrest survivors group, which is not nearly as depressing as you might think it would be. Uh, there must be something about being back alive when you haven't been that makes people surprisingly quite upbeat and jolly. Uh. So, uh, But peer group support, if you have, whether, whether you're a cancer survivor, a sudden cardiac arrest survivor or anything else, peer group support can be really, really useful. And you will find that whoever has been treating you will often be aware of who these groups are and how you can join them.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Rosie. Um, so I'm, I'm quite intrigued myself, really, to learn more about the training aspect of making families count and how organisations
1: can get involved with you um, and the organisation, if that's okay. okay. Well, I would say that our work is pretty much split in half, 50-50, and 50% of it we uh, do what we call bespoke training, which is when a trust contacts us and says, we have identified this as a problem. We would like this training from you guys. And sometimes it's a one-off, very often it's a series of webinars. So either we are training a group of managers who then cascade the learning down through the organization, or we may be training large groups of people at a time, up to 50 people, um, so that eventually, you've trained hundreds of people from that staff around positive family engagement, around correct and good use of use of candor, around um, engaging well with families using P surf. Uh, we also do training around confidentiality and information sharing. So that's fifty percent, and then the other fifty percent are webinars that we run. They're on our website and they are open for anybody to book. Obviously, the majority of them are booked by healthcare professionals, because you you have to be kind of interested in the subject matter. Um, One that is very popular is working well with families after suicide, because whatever whatever form the suicide takes, whether it was a suicide in the care of an actual organisation or a way, it is a subject that staff find very very difficult to deal with and the experience of being trained by people who have had the experience of being the family is often something they will never have come across before and it can be a game changer for them so really we've got the two things going on at the same time we've also got at the moment we're doing a, a mental health project which you're very excited about our project coordinator, Dorit Brown, she is, it was really her baby, but it's all about training people to work better in the initial A&E assessment. So when a very, very poorly distressed person comes in, can you work well with their family to ensure that they're kept safe and they don't end up being an odd statistic?
0: Amazing. Thank you, Rosie. Um, I think you made a good point in the fact that you know, um, you, the training that you're pro- providing is quite. It's a it's a different opportunity. It's a, it's a chance for healthcare workers to maybe get to know certain family members
1: and outside of a work setting for them. I I, still I, I think it's work, I think it's but... more profound than that. To be honest, Rhiannon, I think it's more profound. I think the majority of the people that we train have never ever had to even contemplate what it is like to be a bereaved harmed family member. They haven't got time to think about it. They're much too busy moving on to the next job. And it can be an absolute light bulb moment. If I told you about the number of times we receive emails and feedback from people saying, you have changed my practice. My training with MFC has changed my practice and the way I work with families. And it's, that's what it's all about. That's why we exist yeah
0: well yeah that's what you want that's what you want to hear isn't it that that
1: feedback yeah Yeah. Um, and we also like the one where they say um it was so amazing i have to tell everybody and get everybody else to book we like that one too (laughs) or perhaps that's just me (laughs) (laughs) Um, so
0: you kind of covered the, the mental health project um, that that you're working on. Is there anything else on the horizon for oh, yes. families count? In oh, yeah. 20, well, you know, you're asking
1: the development coordinator. So, yeah, um, obviously, we, I'm, I mean, part of my job is thinking about new things that we can do. Any opportunity we have to be able to um, present at congresses and conferences, so we, we are going to present for the first time at another big conference in the north of England, in the northeast of England uh, this summer, which is going to be nice. It's also face to face, you know, because I think we're all, you know, we've all enjoyed the virtual world, but it's nice to get back to a bit of face to face. Apart from that, um, myself and my colleagues are working on new training around um there's there's a fairly new phenomena in the nhs which is family liaison work which in a way mirrors the police's flo family liaison officer work it's a little bit different obviously but until now there hasn't been any dedicated training for flos to take so we're working on a package of training that any flo in the country would be able to come and take and that will be ready to launch in um autumn i'm also working on a package of training around maternity deaths because as i said to you at the beginning we have to keep it current and relevant what are the big issues that are going down in healthcare at the moment and we need to keep abreast of that and obviously maternity deaths and working better with families after maternity deaths and neonatal is is a very big thing at the moment
0: it is yes you can't can't get away from it at the moment can you so it's great that you're doing you're doing a lot of work around that um, so that kind of ends our um, serious questions I'll call them and um, I'm gonna leave it on more of a kind of lighter note um, and basically um, at the end of every episode we ask our guests to describe their what the health tech moment so this can be a question that is weird wonderful or just a moment that you kind of remember during your career or your life
1: that you've kind of gone yeah, I remember that. Okay. Um, well, you warned me that was coming. So I've had time to think about my, I'm going to call it a light bulb moment because I think if we're very lucky in our lives, we get a few of those. And the one that I'm going to recall is it's my very first training event with Making Families Count. It's the beginning of 2015. I am pretty nervous and I go into a very large room filled with hundreds and hundreds of people that have come to attend our first ever training event which was face to face of course back in those days and i sit somewhere towards the back of the room because i really don't know where to sit this is all still a foreign land to me and they show a film of me talking about my son and about my son's death and the aftermath of the death and as I watch this film, which is pretty peculiar anyway, watching yourself, I realized that almost every single person in that room is silently weeping. They are so moved and I'm astonished. These are senior clinicians. These are people who have seen it, done it, and worn the t-shirt with the blood on, and they are in bits. And in that moment, I suddenly realise that These people who have seen and done so much have never, ever sat down with a family member who has said to them, and it feels like this. And when you did that, it felt like that. When you didn't do this, it felt like this. And this is the effect it's had long-term on me and on my family. And they didn't know that. And that was when I knew that making families count was going to be the rest of my life.
0: Oh, thank you. I think you're almost having me weeping uh, there, Rosie. Um, yeah, incredible. Um, incredible what you're doing and, and um, that kind of that ends our, our podcast for today. And I just want to say thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for being so open and sharing. Thank you for asking me.
1: Thank you for asking. Um, well, it's terribly um, important to be open. It's really important to be honest, honest with yourself first. And if you're honest with yourself, it gets so much easier to be honest with others. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, thank you
0: again um, and I hope hopefully we will st- be staying in touch um I hope um so that's Absolutely. it for that's it for the podcast uh, thanks again for joining us this week and thank you all for listening don't forget to rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and if you have any questions for us or our guests please email whatthehealthtech at radarhealthcare.com we <laughs>